Uh, turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're continuing with our summer series, just simply entitled Parables, where we're looking at some of the parables of Jesus, the parables of the kingdom, and just kind of contemplating what they might mean for our life today. And so the big idea, very simply this morning, this is a parable. Well, they're really all, I mean, I, I gotta stop saying that every week I'm saying, this is a parable we're all pretty familiar with. I think that we're all pretty familiar with most of the parables of Jesus. So the big idea that we're gonna contemplate this morning is simply this, persistence overcomes resistance. Persistence overcomes resistance. And that is the simple point that Jesus is making in this particular parable of what we might call the... Um, the persistent widow or the unjust judge. It's, it's got different titles in various Bibles. But so we're going to talk about prayer. And I once read a quote from an author that simply said this, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Now, I have mixed reactions to that statement but I think there's something that's being communicated there that we need to wrestle with and ponder just a little bit. As I've said before, I've been very open. I, I think that uh, by and large, there's way too much war metaphor in our rhetoric and that uh, over time that has been an unhelpful uh, go-to metaphor for the body of Christ because we, 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 we utilize it too often. And I also don't like the war metaphor because when we use it often enough, it's as though we create a discipleship culture in which we're trying to regain a victory that's already been won by Christ. And that is not our calling. We're supposed to live from the victory of Christ, not strive to create the victory of Christ. And so maybe that's semantics, but I think that those two perspectives affect the healthiness of our discipleship perspective when we're working for rather than trying to achieve Christ's victory. Um, and so we don't really have to see people as our enemies, even if they come from different ideologies and so forth. So, so I think that there is some caution here, but at the same time, I think that there is something worth listening to in that quote, because oftentimes there, 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 are, there are multiple ways of thinking about prayer. That's why I would highly recommend if you are in a season where you're trying to renew your understanding and practice of prayer, I think it was written 20, 25 years ago, but the, prayer, uh, the, the, the book entitled Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home by Richard Foster is a wonderful book because it has a full spectrum of balance of the different ways we can understand prayer. And the reason why I don't like prayer is primarily war metaphor is because one of the primary uses of prayer, it is the avenue from which, with, uh, through which we dialogue with God and increase our intimacy with God. That is not about victory. That is not about war. That is not about fighting the enemy. That is recognizing that prayer is simply a dialogue of intimacy between the worshiper and God. And, and I think it's one of the primary, most important aspects of cultivating a prayer life is to get that reality uh, to a point of, of regular practice in our lives. So that, and that's mostly really, when we talk about prayer, we're mostly talking about it uh, in that way. However, there is another aspect of prayer and it's when we see ourselves as missionaries on God's mission and we recognize that there is in the, in the mission of God 
a resistance that's created from darker force, uh, forces, whether that's spiritual or if it's ideological or whether it's just because of the way of thinking a person has developed as a way of protection because of the trauma in their lives. That there is this place of resistance and there is this aspect of prayer that empowers us to, to, to push back on that resistance, whether it's in our private life or in the life of the ones we love or our community. And we have to remember, we are called first and foremost to be intimate friends with God. I, I will continue to emphasize that as the primary action point for a cultivation of a healthy spirituality. However, we are people on mission. We have a mission to be true to Christ, to be kind to all people, and to be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. When it comes to that third aspect of being the body of Christ in, uh, to, toward our community and beyond, we have to recognize that that might mean that we're met with resistance. It might mean that part of our calling will be to be active in pushing back the darkness. Now, we don't have to fight and defeat the darkness. What I'm saying is there are places where the body of Christ has to rise up and push back the darkness where it has set up an illegitimate stronghold in the lives of our community or our brothers and sisters. And that creates resistance, and we are called to resist that resistance so that people can see and experience the grace, love, and mercy of Jesus. So when that aspect of prayer comes in, then, then that's where we see great examples in the first part of the book of Acts, where the body of Christ comes together and, and they acknowledge there's this external resistance, Lord. So we need you to move your hand and empower us to speak, speak the word more boldly. Now look at what they model there. Even when they're using prayer in this uh, expression of mission, they're not praying against the people out there, which unfortunately a lot of us have probably taken a lot of courses and read a lot of books that said prayers about what you speak against. That's not the model that we see. In fact, the change that they ask for isn't even in the resistant circumstances. The change they ask for is right here. They didn't say, Lord, make the government nicer to us because we deserve it. They said, empower us with the boldness to continue speaking the word of God. So is there, there is this place of prayer where we're asking to be equipped for the mission of God. And in that aspect of prayer, I'd like to keep in mind as we look at Jesus's parable here. So we're just gonna jump into the parable. And what we're gonna do this morning, there's only eight verses, and we're just gonna kind of break them up and do a walking meditation through this parable and pause and contemplate uh, some of the wisdom that Jesus is communicating in this particular parable. So it starts in Luke 18, verse one. And verse one is so critically important to understanding the parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What is the point of Jesus's parable? I can hear you whispering, you can say it. It says it right there in the text. To pray and to not lose heart. This is it. 
This is where teaching on parables can be challenging because people want to press every single metaphor in the parable. And if you press every single metaphor in the parable, you end up coming with an interpretation that is likely not the intended purpose in the first place. And we want to first learn what the original context would have been communicating. It's very simple. This is not a principle of spiritual warfare. This is not making a case that the more you annoy God, the more likely he's going to bless you. That, that is not what's being illustrated in this parable. It's this simple idea. Jesus knew that his disciples needed encouragement to pray and to not lose heart. That's the purpose of the parable. And there's this connection between lack of prayer and losing heart and giving yourself to prayer and not losing heart. So although their circumstances are very different, and the truth is we're gonna see in a moment the context in which he's teaching them about this prayer is a, is a context that's probably way more intense than any of us are ever gonna experience in our lifetime. And yet we can connect with them because we understand what it is to lose heart, to lose heart in a relationship, to lose heart in a season of your children's lives, to lose heart when you give a realistic evaluation of yourself or your own growth and in your mind you come up short. There are plenty of opportunities for us to lose heart. Therefore, there are multiple opportunities for us to listen to the wisdom of Jesus, to learn how to cultivate a vibrant life of prayer so that we fortify ourselves against despair, so that we fortify ourselves against losing heart. That's the motive. The goal of the parable is revealed from the beginning. He told them a parable, look what it says, to the effect they ought to always pray and not lose heart. A vibrant life of prayer is the antidote to despair. Now, I'm not saying it's the only antidote, and like I've said before, there are other aspects to despair because it could be depression and maybe you need to see a doctor. However, that doesn't negate that a holistic approach to our wellness includes our spiritual life. And in the spiritual life, one of the ways we resist despair is we cultivate a very powerful, vibrant life of prayer that's rooted in faith in the heart of God. Now, just for a moment, let's take a look at their circumstance. Why did they need this Encouragement. Well, you may not remember, some of you might, since we went through three years of the book of Luke, but you might not remember the context. So if you have your Bibles, just look over to chapter 17. They'll be on the overhead. I think it's on your notes. Is it in your notes? Okay, good. So it's all there. So he told them at the end of chapter 17 that a time of trial and destruction was coming for their people. And so therefore, when they heard this, they asked questions because they had concerns. And the way Jesus addresses their concerns is he says, let me tell you a story about a woman who never gave up. A woman whose persistence overcame resistance. So what was the context? Well, in, verse, in, in chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus says this, just before this great parable of prayer that we all appreciate, the emotional setting for them may have been a little different because it was preceded with these words. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
it will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So he's using two examples from their specific ethnic history of which they would have been aware. One being the destruction in the flood of Noah, the second being the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And just so that you're tracking with me, I do not believe that this is talking about the end of the world. Jesus is speaking about a time that is relevant to the audience that is listening, and that's why they're concerned. There would be no reason to concern if they knew that, well, I'm talking about a time that's gonna happen 2,000 years plus now. They're concerned because Jesus is warning them about a real, uh, a real season of suffering that's coming upon the people. Verse 30, it will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together, and one will be taken, and the other left. Now, there is lots of speculation I'm sure that we could have over coffee and talk about that that paragraph, which is, I'm happy to do. It's not the scope of this message this morning. What I wanted to do is, is I wanted us, to, wanted us to see the emotional atmosphere that occasioned Jesus telling this parable. So they're hearing this and they are rightly feeling concern. And you can tell that by the way they respond. Verse 37, where Lord, they asked him. And he said to them, a not very comforting answer. Where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Now, we don't have time to dive into this, but we've talked a lot before. He's talking about the time that's coming on that generation when he's warning them of the day, 70 AD, when the temple is gonna be raised completely to the ground and an unspeakable number of Jewish people are going to be slaughtered. This is coming in their future. And so he's warning them about this time that is coming. And, and so there's some cryptic phrases there that don't make sense to modern ears that we could go into that some other time. But my point is, he has warned them they're clearly under duress and they're wanting more information about how to prepare. His answer is to give this kind of cryptic response and then he goes immediately into a story about persistence in prayer. And it's a story about a conflict of injustice. So they need encouragement to not lose heart. Now my point in that little rabbit trail was to set up the context so that we could ponder this idea. If his words are true for the most catastrophic moment in the history of Israel, certainly the most catastrophic moment in the history of that generation to whom he's speaking, it is also true of the many lesser trials that come from a lifestyle of faithfully following Jesus. And so what he then is gonna set up is, you don't need to know all the details. What you need to know is the power of your prayer. Loss of heart is a result of lack of prayer. On the contrary, persistent prayer prevents 
a loss of heart. So verse two, he begins, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So it's really important that Jesus not just say that there's a judge, but that he is emphasizing the point that this judge is not in any way internally motivated to honor God and to honor his position of protection among the people by prioritizing true justice. He doesn't care about those things in this story. So the parable is using comparison and contrast to make its point. So we wanna listen to the details that Jesus gives about the characters in the story. He uses comparison and contrast, and here we are introduced to the contrast. The judge doesn't fear God, and he does not respect people. Therefore, he has no internal honor and motivation to work for justice. He's not motivated to it. He's not inspired to do it. In fact, he's inspired to live his life in this callous disconnection of the concerns of people and certainly even toward the concerns of God. Verse three, now we have the comparison. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. So the judge, a position of power, who doesn't care about justice, a widow is in a position of vulnerability and she cannot have control over her circumstances and and attain the justice that she needs. So she's going to the judge and asking the judge to intervene on her behalf. This is the character of comparison. It's a widow in need of justice. Apparently, she has an adversary who is denying her some just action. Now, what's interesting here in this context is Jesus specifically uses the character of a widow. Now, why might he do that? Because he is speaking to a generation of Jewish people that would have been very much aware of the history of their people and of the history of Israel's call to maintain justice for the vulnerable. In fact, in fact, he uses a person who would have been among the four vulnerable groups of people that the Old Testament repeatedly commands Israel to care for. Once you recognize it and you reflect and you go back and read the prophets, you'll notice that these four groups of people are often mentioned within the same breath. Those four four, um, categories of people are the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. The widow, the orphan, and the poor, and the immigrant. Now, now why does he use a widow as an example? Because he was pulling out, he was using an example of the four most vulnerable groups in Israel throughout their history. These would have been the four groups that would have been most likely the victims of injustice and oppression. They did not have the same rights as other people in Israel. Therefore, they needed to be protected because of their lack of access to justice that other people, other citizens of Israel would have had. So that's why the prophets repeatedly call Israel back to making sure that they're taking care of these four categories of the vulnerable among them. Well, this is the example that Jesus chooses. He chooses one of those four, a widow. And so the scenario that Jesus is creating is that a man in a position of power is exploiting a vulnerable woman by denying her justice. He didn't tell us what that justice is. He just makes it clear she is being denied justice. And when we talk about justice, 
Unfortunately, in our polarized age, every single word uh, <clears throat> creates this polarization based on our ideologies. It, for our sakes this morning, the most simple definition of justice that we take from the Bible is that process by which God makes the world right. He sets things right in the world. Things are not set right for this widow, therefore she's asking the judge to give her justice in order to set things right. Another way of saying it is this, I think I stole this from N.T. Wright, justice is God putting things the way they're supposed to be. Putting things the way they're supposed to be. Well, verse four, here we're introduced to the tension. For a while, he, being the judge, refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continually coming. So the persistent asking of the widow causes the judge to finally give the justice that is requested. It says, literally, he quotes, she keeps bothering me and eventually she will beat me down. That phrase, eventually she will beat me down, has been an encouraging phrase especially among resistance movements of nonviolence all throughout history. It was a recognition that if we keep pursuing the way of Christ, if we refuse to retaliate with violence against our enemy, who is the means through which we're experiencing injustice, we will continue to persist and we will overcome. And the history of the world has many examples where this has been exactly the truth. And it's illustrated here by this widow. So the point isn't that God is stingy and doesn't want to do good for us, but if we ask him enough, he'll finally come around. That's not the point. It, the point Jesus is making is the power of consistent persistence. Persistence overcomes resistance. And that's what this widow models. And then Jesus makes the point clear. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, a reference to Israel, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on the earth? In other words, when this great catastrophic event happens, will there be a faithful remnant persisting in trusting Yahweh for justice? That's the question. And hopefully the answer is yes. Might not even be the majority, but there will be a remnant who will be actively practicing faith by pouring out their hearts to Yahweh 
beckoning him to respond and bring them justice. This is where Jesus applies the parable, not directly to our story, but he applies the parable to their story. Suffering is unavoidably in their future. Not just the disciples, but suffering for the entire nation is unavoidable in their future. But God will be quick to bring them justice and the time of great suffering will come to an end. But they are called to look to God alone for justice. When this time of deliverance comes, will they be faithfully trusting him or will they be faithfully trusting the systems of traditions that bring them comfort? That's the question. And historically, this played out. We know those who heeded Jesus' warnings and fled the city were preserved. Those who ran to the temple and enclosed in those gates, they were all destroyed. And so it came down to a question of where they saw their comfort and protection being. In their traditions, or in what Yahweh's calling them to in the presence of Jesus. And they had to make that choice. And Jesus is warning them that if they will make the choice to trust Yahweh, deliverance will come to them because God is not like the judge. In fact, he's just the opposite. God longs to give justice. God longs to make things right. Justice is another way of saying it, is connected to the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this cry out for, another way we might say it is this. We cry out for justice. We're asking for the dream of God to become reality in our generation and in our location. That's the longing and the cry for justice. He longs to give it. God's character is that of a loving creator who longs to put things right. In fact, we're made in his image. That part of us that responds negatively to injustice and has a heart to see fairness and equity and things put right, that doesn't come from a vacuum. That comes because of the Holy Spirit that is infusing us with the dream of God which is for everything to be put right and to work toward that justice being made manifest on earth as it is in heaven. The disciples are to be like the widow. They're called to maintain courage by consistently requesting God to make things right. Their consistent prayer allows the focus of their hope to be on God and his kingdom not on their circumstance. This act will keep them from shrinking back in resigned cynicism or fear or being tempted to pursue illegitimate ways of bringing God's justice because we can be tempted to that as well. It's not God's justice if it's not brought in the spirit of Jesus. It's the spirit of something else. In fact, if you'll recall... James and John asked for justice of Jesus one time. Do you remember? They said, Lord, they rejected you. They disrespected you. Would you like for us to call down fire from heaven? And Jesus says, 
you don't know what spirit you're of. So we're only doing God's work of justice if we are bringing it in the spirit of Christ. There is misguided zeal. There is a way where we're so committed to our vision and what we think is right, we justify unchristlike means as the way of bringing that justice to bear on the world. The protection against that is to trust Yahweh and be Christ. Trust God and then be Christ. Be Christ to our community and beyond. Now, as we honor the historical context, here's what we know. We know that these group of disciples that Jesus is speaking to are part of the way that that justice is established leading up to their suffering and beyond that suffering. They are the means through which God's hands and feet are on the world to create that justice for which they're seeking. That they are the hands and feet that resist that suffering on behalf of others. And so it, directly in this context, the story is about them learning to pray and not lose heart. But the larger story is because they prayed and didn't lose heart, they became God's hands and feet of justice among the people. When God works in our world, the Bible makes it very clear that he chooses to work through his image bearers. If you ever just, I mean, just go do, do a, a quick reading through the Bible and all these circumstances that are presented and need to be overcome. God being who he is surely could have done those things of his own accord without any intervention from man. And yet, that is not the pattern that the Bible displays for us. Time and time again, God's work is done and manifest through the hands and feet of his image bearers. It's how God works. That hasn't changed. It is a mistake to present our faith as a system of salvation, primarily about the afterlife. It is an invitation to recognize your place in the body of Christ as the bride of Christ so that you are empowered to continue to physically do the work of Christ in your generation. We are not just signing on to a belief system, we're answering a divine call to participate in the mission of God. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We are responding to the, that, that divine call. And I don't know how much as individuals you've thought about it, but maybe now is a great moment to. How have you responded to the divine call to be the body of Christ in your community and in your generation? How have you maybe redefined how you understand yourself as a response to your revelation of your divine call to be enlisted in the mission of God in your generation? There's a, it would be nice if all of us had the experience of like Joseph and Mary. You know, Joseph was gonna make the absolute wrong decision 
And God was kind enough to send him a dream that said, Joe, you're making a mistake. This is what you should do. I would love for that to more frequently happen in my life. And I, I don't disbelieve in supernatural communication from God. I think that's a possibility. I just don't think it's the norm because there's plenty of other people that had to choose to learn and do the right thing without the aid of a supernatural vision or dream. They just did it out of faith in trusting God or faith in trusting Jesus. And we are called to do the same. So it, if we are not recipients of an angelic visitation, how might we know how the Spirit is calling us to participate as missionaries of God's justice, of the desire of Jesus to put things right on earth as it is in heaven in our generation? There are a few hints. For what is your heart burdened to see made right? Now, you may not even immediately know, but you probably have these moments where you're exposed to some expression of injustice, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't fly by your mind like the rest of the information that's constantly in the air, but it's something that causes you to have a reaction. There's an emotion there. There is something that grips you, and really, it might not feel positive. Maybe it stirs up a bit of anger, a desire for resistance. You remember James tells us, be angry, but yet do not sin. So the idea that every impulse of anger is sinful is ridiculous. It, it might be the spirit's agitation in your soul because he's trying to motivate you to stand and act against injustice, to, to be a person who resists the resistance. So is there something that burdens your heart? Something that you want to see made right? Is your longing for that justice potentially revealing a call to serve humanity? It might be the way the Holy Spirit's stirring you. Are you being called to become the answer to your prayer? Now, by that, I don't mean that God doesn't work supernaturally. But if you look at the scriptures and you read the biographies of spiritual people and people that had an impact upon the history of the world, they, Mother Teresa had a, is characterized by her life of prayer. But she's also characterized by picking up an infant who has leprosy and holding that infant in her arms. Her cry for justice then becomes an extension of the actions of her life. And maybe what God is doing internally is this invitation. I am calling you to persist in prayer and you will overcome the resistance and the first line of resistance might be the resistance that is set up in your own heart. And it might be overcome so God push, leads you on to that next place. 
Are you being called to bring the authority of God's kingdom to bear in a place where darkness has created an illegitimate presence? I believe in the victory of Christ, but I'm not naive in thinking that all things have been put right according to God's heart. That is the responsibility that's placed on one generation of the next, those who are called to be the body of Christ in their location and in their generation. If we will give ourselves over to persistent prayer, God, make this right. That process in and of itself sets us on a course of journey. See, I was mistaken. I thought that meant that was the only work I was called to do. Well, I'll pray about it. What, you need clothing? I'll pray about that. You need food? I'll pray about that. And I really liked praying about all those needs. And along the way of doing that prayer, something started to feel uncomfortable. It started to feel uncomfortable that I was sitting back in my comfort asking God to go do my bidding out there. And over time, that prayer became an invitation to enter into my own journey of personal transformation that turned me into a person that was not just willing to pray for God's justice to be done, but to say, I am willing to be one of those through whom it's made manifest in my generation. When that happened, prayer took on a completely different significance than basically an activity I did because I felt guilty if I didn't do it off my spiritual checklist of healthy, quiet time activities. There's more to it than that. It's an invitation for us to be changed and enlisted into the mission of God. So what about you? Are you possibly being called to resist the darkness in a place that it's illegitimately present in the life of an individual, the life of your community, or maybe you're being called to do something, something more systemically. All of these are legitimate ways that we are enlisted into the mission of God, but we have to do it with God's heart and with the spirit of Christ. That we're trusting God to be the one to bring about what we cannot, therefore we have the courage to take a stand, to move forward, to lend a hand, to offer a cup of water or an embrace. These are the works of justice. So the question is, is this, and it's a legitimate question. I did not know that this would be a, a question about which I would eventually wrestle, and I didn't know that I would come across so many other people that have wrestled with this question. But you need to know in your heart do you actually believe that God is working to put the world right? Or have you given up hope? Have you yielded to cynicism? Have you withdrawn in fear? Or do you believe that God is working to put the world right? Because if you do, then it begs the question, how might he be calling you to be part of what he is doing to put the world right? The injustice you suffer, the injustice you see just might be a divine call to service. And so, don't misunderstand me. I don't think it's wrong to ask God for miracles in our circumstances, but when I look at the prayer lives of saints and I look at the Bible, I have this suggestion that I have taken on for myself. 
Primarily pray for the change or the growth of your character rather than the change of your circumstance. So yes, you can pray, God change this circumstance. Or you can move into praying, God make me who I need to be in the midst of this circumstance. Maybe in alleviate the suffering, take it away. Instead, we pray, God, give me courage. Give me grace. Give me compassion. Use these opportunities of tension to be in an invitation for you to continue your journey of being more deeply formed into the image of the Son, rather than the circumstance being changed because it would be more convenient for us if it did. Maybe it's there because God's doing something in you. And then you, as you transform, are empowered to actually act upon the circumstance that is burdening you. So pray for a change of character rather than a change of circumstance. Pray for wisdom and courage, wisdom to know what to do and the spirit to be able to follow through trusting Jesus. Just like that widow, Return day after day after day and pray until you are ready to be the one through whom God answers your prayer. And then you will truly be the bride of Christ, partnering with your beloved to make the world right.